Well, welcome, Redemption Church. If you're new here, we want to welcome you. We are one church that gathers throughout the state of Arizona in 10 local congregations that are united in being gospel-centered and outward-focused and believing and pursuing all of life, all for Jesus. Uh, my name is Tyler James. I needed my notes for that. I am one of the pastors here. In fact, if you don't know me, I'm the family pastor here, and I've noticed since since COVID, since the pandemic, or, or maybe other reasons you moved into town, but we've had a lot of new families, and so if that's you and you don't know me yet, please uh, feel free to email me or, or come track me down in the lobby. I'd love to get to know you uh, a little more. And so, let's see, I have one announcement, and it is the baby dedication. Steph, you're going to have to help me remember the dates. I wrote it down, but now they're gone. This is the problem with technology. September, what, soon, just soon. I could say that. She said give her a second, so I'm going to stall, and I'm really good at that. Uh, so we, we do baby dedications. They're very important for the church, and we have a lot of new babies. So make sure you write these dates that are coming in three, two. One's in November, one's in September. Jackie's saying just, yeah, it was September. Third week, I think. 17th. September 19th is the next one. So parents, write down that date. A lot of you are like, I don't even have an infant. This is all useless information. Okay, if you have an infant or know someone who does, tell them that date, September 17th, 19th. This is going very well. Uh, let me speak for just a moment to the parents of any middle schoolers and high schoolers in the room. You know, uh, as my job, I've done a lot of reading and research into what keeps kids engaged in the life of the church as they grow up in the church. Now, um, it's no surprise to know that most parents of kids that age, they want their kids to grow up and come to a saving faith in God and to come and be a part of the church and to join into that. Now, do you know what the secret of that is? The first one is easy. It's God's grace, right? There's nothing we can manipulate there. It's just an act of God's grace. But the second most prominent thing is relationships, and it's relationships with their peers. And so um, I want to just plug Pastor Trey has been doing, he's our next gen pastor. He's been doing these events over the summer for kids in middle school and high school. And this is what I want you to think of when you see these events we're doing, especially school is getting closer and closer. And as that gets closer, I want you to think, parents, with that in mind, that as that's getting closer, the goal, we want to teach the kids the Bible. That's super important. We want to teach them what it looks like to join the life of the church. But we also want to create a space where they can connect relationally. Now, that takes time. That takes faithfulness on your part to bring them in. But since Trey's not up here, I just thought I want to brag on him for a sec and say that every time he creates those events, anything Pastor Trey is doing with that age group, I want you to make it a priority and try to be there with that goal in mind. It's about relationships long term, okay? So with that said, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word? Oh, and fourth through sixth graders, you can be dismissed too. Cindy's back there. All right. Good morning. Now, now therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers. 
and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that, have, that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them, even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them, and in the large and rich land that you set before them. They did not serve you or turn from their work, wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruits and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves, and it is rich. Yield goes to the kings who you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies. And our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. Because of all of this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. All right. All right. Thanks, Aaron. Good morning, Arcadia. Good to see you. Uh, if you are new here, my name is Frank, and I'm also one of the pastors here. And um, I generally like to say that uh, uh, maybe 35 Sundays a year, uh, you're going to see me up here. Uh, the guy that was up here the last two weeks, our, our worship and small groups, Pastor Redemption Communities, Pastor Tyler Thompson, he's actually away this weekend, actually last week and this next week, he's away in Denver. Uh, he's working on his doctor of ministry and he has, uh, uh, every summer he's going to have intensives up there and so he's away doing that right now, but he's probably tuning in right now. Hi Tyler, hope your studies are going well and welcome to the rest of our, our YouTube viewership, but uh, I, I am uh, one of the pastors, like I said, I, I, I speak maybe 35 Sundays out of the, out of the year, and uh, this last week I decided I'm going to see how accurate that really is. So I went on our preaching calendar and I counted the last 52 weeks, and I spoke 35 times out of the last 52 weeks. So I'm, it's about right. Um, you know, I went to North High School here in Phoenix, I know how to do math, let me just say that, all right? So um, please have your Bibles out for this. Again, we say this every week, but again, it's just so important to have your Bibles out. And I know some of you are wondering, all right, what's he going to say about the orange and purple? Let me tell you, I have something way better to talk about than the sons. Our grandson is in the house. That's so much better. There are many things, actually, that are. I know it's fun, but that's so much better. They got in last night. They're going to be here about a week, and he's already asleep, so he knows how to handle a sermon by his granddad. So, um, and not only that, that's our grandson, Jamie, Father Joey, uh, uh, Mother Darby. Uh, glad that they're here, but also we get to talk about Nehemiah and Jesus this morning. Again, uh, trying to remind you. Now, I'm going to leave my shirt on today, but trying to remind you trying to remind you that the things of this world will always break your heart and that there is Jesus. And that's who we have to turn our eyes upon and turn our attention to. Uh, one other thing before we get started, um, every Sunday when I, I, I've been gone the last two Sundays, by the way, Wisconsin, big family wedding up in Pepin, which is the birthplace of 
Laura Ingalls Wilder, so I got to see the little house where she was born. But big family wedding up there, it was a lot of fun. Uh, and also then a few days of vacation. So I appreciate Tyler taking care of uh, the pulpit last week. But every Sunday when I walk in here lately, I, I look at that Hope Women's Center table and, and I'm just really thankful and amazed at how much you, get, you all give. And we really do appreciate it. Uh, we're taking personal items uh, this, this month, which again, we're getting loaded up again, which is great. Uh, Hope Women's Center really appreciates it. Next month, we're going to do back to school stuff in August for them. And I understand from Andrea that Costco's got a lot of back to school uh, specials going on if you're interested in hearing about that. Andrea also, uh, I saw this on our, our, our Arcadia staff Slack channel. Um, a couple of weeks ago. This was just fascinating to me. Uh, for some reason, Andrea decided she, last month was diapers. Uh, we collected more than 4,000 diapers for uh, Hope. That's a lot of diapers. So um, that's really good, and I, we really appreciate you all uh, doing that. All right, enough of all of that. Let's get into Nehemiah. We are in the book of Nehemiah. We've been going through it chapter by chapter and most of the time verse by verse. Can I just tell you uh, this morning, we're only looking at one chapter, and for some of you that's a relief. Next week we're going to be looking at three. It's going to be a flyover. Last week, Tyler had to handle two chapters, and he did it very well. It's hard to do that. You can't read everything. We're going to read everything in chapter nine this morning, and it's a long chapter. It's a big chapter, but it's one of those chapters where, as I worked through it, I believed uh, that the Spirit was saying, you have to read every word of this chapter. It's really important. Um, because it contains so much of the history of God's people. And so I'd like you to follow along, but I'd also like you to pray for me, because uh, as much as I enjoy public speaking, and which I actually do, uh, and even teach public speaking, the one thing I'm not very good at, honestly, it, no matter how much I practice, is the public reading of Scripture, for whatever reason. And so just be praying for me as we do that. Be patient with me, but we are going to read through the whole thing. So... The story of Nehemiah is about this guy, Nehemiah, and he wrote most of the book, although there's an editor that helped fill in some of the historical gaps as well. Nehemiah was, uh, in, in the mid-440s uh, BC, was the cupbearer for the Persian king. Um, the Persian king had allowed all the Jews to head back to Jerusalem from uh, the great Babylonian exile, and he allowed them, the, uh, the, the king had allowed them to do that some hundred years earlier, and the Jews got back there, and it had been very hard. Life had been very hard in Jerusalem from uh, 538 all the way until 444 BC. Um, they were able to rebuild some things. They rebuilt the temple, but they were not able to rebuild the wall. They had tried for decades, and the neighboring people just wouldn't let them do that. So Nehemiah finally set out, and his purpose and mission that God had given him was to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. And so that was, that's 2,500 years ago. Isn't it amazing how much of the story of Nehemiah is applicable to us today? Yes, it is, because um, God is a timeless God, and a timeless God does not produce a dated word. And so his word is always um, relevant to what we're talking about today. So he's commissioned to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem, and here's what we've discovered in the first eight chapters. Just a quick review. We've seen, first of all, Nehemiah's prayerfulness, humility, courage, and patience. We've seen the compassion and helpfulness of Nehemiah's boss, King Artaxerxes. 
We've seen the plan and the progress of the construction of the wall. We've seen the hardships and the dedication of the people involved in building the wall. We've seen the opposition to and the conspiracy against Nehemiah several times. We've seen the wall completed in an amazing 52 days, only 52 days. It took a couple of decades to rebuild the temple. They rebuilt the wall in 52 days. And we've seen an accounting of the people of God who have returned to Jerusalem from the exile and a record of their contributions to the building of the wall and the strengthening of their faith community. And we've seen the public reading of God's word and the Feast of Booths celebrated. And so now, in the words of Tyler Thompson from last week, we have to ask the question, now what? Well, this is the now what chapter. Uh, We're going to go through it, like I said, verse by verse, starting with verses 1 through 5. Let's read. Now, on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. Hmm. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. Hmm. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord, their God, for a quarter of the day. That's three hours. Everybody there stood up and they read the Bible for three hours and everybody stood and listened. Three hours. And for another quarter of the day, they made confession and worshiped the Lord, their God. That's another three hours that they confessed and and worshiped. On the stairs of the Levites stood Yeshua, Bani, Kadmael, Shebaniah, Bani, Sherebiah, Bani, and Chenani. And they cried with a loud voice to the, the, the Lord, their God. Then the Levites, Yeshua, Kadmael, Bani, Hashabneah, Sherebiah, Hadiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. So that verse 1, this like earth on their heads and sackcloth, those are symbols of mourning and confession. Today, when we confess our sin, I don't think anybody dresses up in sackcloth and and rubs dirt on their forehead. But that's what they did back then when they mourned and they confessed their sin. And they were mourning over their sin. They were mourning over their sin. In verse 2, they confessed the sins of the iniquities of their fathers. Now, a couple times today, I'm going to say, listen closely, because we need to hear this. Listen closely. You and I are so, so sensitive, especially in our culture today, we are so sensitive about our own guilt and our own culpability that when we read something like this, I think, I don't know, I think as Tom Schrader used to say, it just jars our preserves. We're so busy trying to figure out how to blame shift our own sins that we won't even consider the possibility that we might also need some measure of acknowledgement of the sins of our forebearers. I know that's hard for some of us to hear, but these kinds of confessions are made throughout the Bible. This is not some odd, offhanded, unique verse here. These kinds of confession are made throughout 
the Bible. Not only have I sinned, but my forebearers, my forefathers, my ancestors have sinned, and I confess that. And what we need to understand is that this is all forebearers, all fathers, all mothers, all ancestors. There's no person or group that's excluded from this. All have sinned. Paul says in Romans chapter 3, no one does good, no, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one does good. No one is holy and righteous. Everybody. But we're so busy trying to figure out how to excuse our culpability in things. And this is one of the reasons why we need to read Scripture and see the history of God's people and how they handled those things. And understand that self-assessment and self-awareness and a humble willingness to own sin is actually a sign of truly knowing and following Jesus. Truly knowing and following Jesus. Martin Luther, the great reformer, used to write and say all the time, The Christian life is one of confession and repentance. The Christian life following Jesus is one of confession and repentance. In verse 3, and so they read scripture for three hours. And they confessed their sin and worshiped God for three hours. Three hours. Okay, if I just drop the mic now. (laughs) Or how about this? How about if I preach for another two two hours and 55 minutes? How about that? There's some nervous laughter out there. Is he serious? I've only been here once. Is he serious? Okay. Here's what, what I'll suggest before, any, before we damage any sound equipment or I talk through your lunch. What we need to take from this is that sometimes the best way to com- prepare for our confession is to read God's word as they had. Life with Jesus is one of confession and repentance. And one of the best ways to prepare for that discipline is to get with God, listen under God, listen to his word, and know him. And then you look at verse 5, the supremacy of God always comes first. And if we get that wrong, we get everything else wrong. If we allow the idols of this world, the false gods of this world, to push their way into our lives, and we begin to worship them and serve them more than God, that becomes a problem. Let me just remind you, of what Paul says in his letter to the church at Colossae about the supremacy of Christ, our Lord, our Savior, God in the flesh. Paul writes this, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, invisible and, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. That's what Paul says about the supremacy, the preeminence of God in our lives. So, Moving on to the next paragraph, verses 6 through 8. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships you. 
You are the God, you are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. The confession and worship here that the people are doing is not only a confession of sin, but it's also a confession and testimony of who God is. He is creator. He is provider. He's protector. He's preserver. And he is warrior. But he's a warrior of holiness and blessing. A warrior of holiness and blessing. So in verses 6 through 8, we are reminded of the importance of knowing, acknowledging, and being grateful for God's character. Next paragraph, 9 through 15. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them, so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land, and you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day, and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments, and you made known to them your holy Sabbath. And commanded them commandments and statutes, and a law by Moses, your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger, and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. So here's what the author now, here, Nehemiah, is doing. And he started this in verses 6 through 8, but he's reciting the history of God's people. And he's going to continue to do that through um, this this. Uh, this chapter. He started with Genesis and Abraham in verses 6 through 8, and now we get Moses and the Exodus. So what we just read in those seven verses was the book of Exodus. So now you can say, hey, I read the whole book of Exodus today. Now, admittedly, it's the Cliff Notes version, but that is Exodus. And for you and I, for us today, it reminds us of how important it is to know God's history because God's history demonstrates to us his love, his grace, and his faithfulness. So verses 9 through 15 can be summed up like this. First of all, it's the importance of remembering. You know, honestly, reviewing our past is a great way to help us to have the wisdom we need to improve our future. And then second of all, it's the importance of telling God's stories to each other. One of the things that we do at Redemption Church is every time we get all of the pastors from all 10 congregations together once a month is we spend 30, 45 minutes, sometimes an hour just standing and telling each other God's stories. What has God done? What is God doing? And it's a way of encouraging each other. And then the history lesson continues in 16 through 21. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you 
are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Let me just say, just to take a second there. But wait a minute, he sent them into exile. He judged them with the Assyrians and with the Babylonians. He's, he's not a patient God abounding in love. Do you understand that he warned his people for centuries before he did that? He didn't say, hey, look, this is going to happen in five minutes if you don't turn your life around. He gave them hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years and sent prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet. And the people turned their backs on him. He is patient. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies. You and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. Clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. So they stiffened their neck. They were stiff-necked. That's a, that's a way of saying that they were very stubborn. Um, we're dog people. We have dogs. Any of you have dogs? Any, any of you? Okay, so you, you ever walk a dog on a leash and the dog is determined to go someplace that you absolutely do not want to go? And it is a battle, right? It is a battle. Unfortunately, that is often the truth about the people of God then and today. We're going to go where we want to go, no matter how hard God is trying to pull us back into his loving covenantal arms. We are determined to go our own way. And also notice that the people acknowledge not just the good times in the past, but they also acknowledge the reality of the hardships of past times. So this isn't some romanticizing of the past. You look at verse 21, for 40 years God sustained his people in the wilderness. The wilderness was not an optimal place, and yet God provided for them and protected them. And the example of his grace, mercy, and provision that the author uses that God gave them is their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. Now please, just slow down here and think about those two examples. That's what they are, examples of his provision and protection. Think about these two examples in our context today. What would it be like to go 40 years without Amazon.com, Biltmore Fashion Park, or my sister's closet? What would it be like? Okay. We wouldn't be able to go 40 minutes without some of those things, some of us. 40 years ago, I think about, okay, maybe 45 years ago, but just those, those of you who are old enough like me, there's like four of you in the room. Okay, but the, you're old enough like me. Think back 40, 45 years. What were you wearing then? I was wearing, look it up on the internet. I was wearing... This, these things called leisure suits and John Travolta Saturday Night Fever pants. That's what I was wearing. There's, there is no way I would want to be wearing that today, right? I mean, just think about, think about that. And then how about the swollen feet? Now, I know some of you are like, oh, come on, there's got to be worse physical sufferings than swollen feet. Maybe, but not many. Can I get an amen? Uh, just wait till you have swollen feet, I'm telling you. Swollen feet are no day at the beach, my brothers and sisters. 
They're not. But God protected them from swollen feet. And that really is just an example of how God protected them in general. That his, his protection was comprehensive. See, the point here is that even in a place of absolute barrenness, the people of God were not abandoned. God's grace and blessing comes in many forms and, and in many tropes. And sometimes we're so busy with the things of this world that we can't see how God is blessing us right now. So verses 16 through 21 can be summed up this way. First of all, the importance of not romanticizing the past. We need to remember the icky as well as the blessed, because otherwise we'll make mistakes. Again, honestly reviewing our past is a great way to help us to have the wisdom to improve our future. And please, be careful of buying into your false memories of events and places being better than they actually were. I've, I've fallen into this trap many times, and I know better now. Uh, but I, talk, I still talk to people who, who move to Phoenix and, and long for the place that they used to live. And, and I, can, I, I, I get that. I understand that. In, in my early 20s, I spent five years living in Chicago. And I'm telling you, I have really, really fond memories. I love that city. It's one of the reasons why I'm a huge Chicago Blackhawks fan. I, I love the culture there. I love everything about it. And, and I have the tendency to romanticize it at times. But this last couple of weeks when we were heading to um, Wisconsin, we were supposed to fly into Milwaukee. And this has become a, a familiar story for many of you. I know Southwest canceled our flight a couple hours before we were supposed to fly into Milwaukee and said that they could get us into Milwaukee three days later. Thank you very much. We have a wedding to go to. Um, and I know it's happening with all the airlines. I would say the same thing about American if it was American, okay? Uh, but somehow, some way, they found two seats for us just an hour later uh, going into Midway. Now, that created a lot of problems for us. We had to change a lot of arrangements, but we made it into Midway, Chicago Midway, which is on the south side of Chicago, and we were able to change our rental car and all of that. And we had to drive, though, through Chicago in order to get to Wisconsin. The only way to go around it is essentially to go down to Bloomington, and you're not going to do that, okay? So we had to drive through Chicago both on the way to Wisconsin and on the way back. And let me tell you something. It didn't matter when we were driving through Chicago. It didn't matter what time it was. The traffic there is horrible. Those of you who complain about the traffic in Phoenix, get over it. <laughs> it was almost like LA out there, number one. And number two, here's the other thing that I just, I railed at, J Jackie got so tired of me talking about this. Okay, we were on Interstate 55, we were on Interstate 294, and we were on Interstate 94, and I'm like, I was here in the early 80s. The same places that, that, that were under construction then are still under construction now. What is going on here? It's a mess. I'm not moving back to Chicago. Be careful of romanticizing the past. Be careful of not remembering the hardships, by the way, that God brought you through during that time as well. And then the second thing that these verses remind us of is the importance of understanding that we cannot outsin God's grace and mercy. That is really good news. When we look ahead to the New Testament and we see Jesus hanging on the cross, there is no sin. There is no thought. There is nothing that you and I can do that can nullify what Jesus did on the cross. He has saved and redeemed us through his cross and the resurrection. That is really good news. All right, next, chapter, uh, next uh, paragraph, verses 22 through 25. 
And you, God, gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into, your, into their hand with the kings, their kings and the peoples of the land, that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Verse 23 again refers back to the story of Abraham in Genesis, but then the rest of these verses here recall the book of Joshua. So again, we're moving chronologically through the history of God's people. And here's what verses 22 through 25 are doing in this account, reminding God's people of the importance of recognizing God's faithfulness when it comes to him fulfilling his promises, that he is faithful to fulfill his promises. Jesus is coming again. We have that promise. That's a good promise. And he will be faithful to fulfill that. But before we move on to that next paragraph, uh, let's acknowledge a subtle little clue that appears in verse 25. I read a lot about this with the commentators and how we can, <clears throat> we should look at that verse and be reminded how we can really get off track in our walk with Jesus today. In their prosperity, which was provided by God, some people look at this verse and think that it's a compliment to the people. It's not. In their prosperity provided by God, they became fat. That Hebrew word translated fat literally means complacent and lazy. So they became complacent and lazy and were delighted in themselves. Far too often, you and I are tempted to rely on prosperity, ease, and comfort for our security rather than the God who makes all those things possible for us. And, 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 when we have those things, we think we're the ones that, dealt, that did it, not God. We're so ready to give ourselves credit and not God the credit. Now, here you go. Hear me when I say this. There's nothing wrong with being happy. There is nothing wrong with prospering. There's nothing wrong with comfort, convenience, and pleasure. I didn't hear an amen. There's nothing wrong with those things, right? Amen. Thank you. One person agrees. Good. But just as suffering can lead us to be angry with God and doubt his goodness, which can move us away from God, prosperity can lead us to arrogance and a false sense of self-sufficiency that also moves us away from God. It's that prayer in Proverbs that God doesn't let us fall too far into poverty, but he also doesn't let us have too much prosperity because either way we'll forget about God. We'll forget about God. And we'll see that in the next paragraph. Look at verses 26 through 31. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you and they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven 
And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the land of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you, and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies, so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets. Yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them. For you are a gracious and merciful God. Nevertheless, that word nevertheless, it's rarely good when you see nevertheless. It's not, it, rarely does anything good come after the word nevertheless. Okay? Nevertheless, in their prosperity, they turned on God. They didn't turn to God, they turned on God in their prosperity. And so now what we have here in this paragraph are references to the histories of the Old Testament book of Judges, which is a very difficult and dark book, and the Old Testament books of 1st and 2nd Kings in verses 29 through 31 with the movements of the Assyrians and the Babylonians against God's people. So verses 26 through 31 can be summed up this way. These verses show the importance of knowing and reciting history so as not to repeat history. The history of the Assyrian rampage in 722 B.C. and the Babylonian exile from 605 to 539 B.C. Why would anybody want to go through those things again? And yet, we make those mistakes. These verses also remind us of the reality of human nature. We are naturally bent towards sin and away from God. I, I have a, a shoulder injury now. It's very, very painful. Very painful. And by the way, I recently got an injection, so it's feeling better. But I went several weeks just in tremendous pain. It's on my right shoulder, my dominant side. I have no idea how it happened, but it's just, it's doing all that clicking and all that stuff. And just, I, it's so much so that it was waking me up in the middle of the night. What it taught me, though, was that I never realized how much I naturally defer to my right hand, my right arm, and my right shoulder to do just about everything. I never even thought about it until now. Because every movement on my right side was giving me pain. Excruciating pain. Like I didn't want to do anything. I couldn't sit at a computer even and type things out without being in pain. Well, in the same way that I just naturally, without even thinking about it or realizing it, defer to my right side, we all naturally, without thinking about it or realizing it, defer towards self and away from God. We're curved in on ourselves. That's why we need to think about it. That's why we need to realize it. That's why we need to be reminded and we need to pray. That's why we need to be disciplined in purposefully pursuing God and pursuing his word and reading his word. And then finally, these verses remind us that God often, in fact, mostly, I would say, God works through exile and remnants. Come. Come to Jesus. Be with the people of God and experience exile and smallness and remnant. <laughs> Not a very good sales pitch, is it? But that's how God works. If it weren't for exile and remnants, in other words, suffering and the 
odds stacked against us, it would be a lot harder to see God work and appreciate his work, wouldn't it? If everything was always just cupcakes and muffins, it would be so easy for us to go, we did that. But when we have no other hope but God, and God acts in the midst of things, like he did with Jamie, we can point to God. And we know who he is and his sovereignty and his love and his mercy. 32 through 37, what Aaron read for us. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardships seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom, and amidst, amid your great goodness that you gave them, and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit, its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. Yet it is rich. Yet its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. Verse 33, our salvation does not depend on our worthiness, but on God's character and faithfulness. And again, we're reminded there that our sin does not nullify God's grace. We can't outsin God's grace. And yet, think about verse 33. You have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. We tend to reverse that verse. (laughs) We tend to go to God and kind of shake our fist at him and verbally say, look at me, look at how righteous I've been. Look look at what I'm doing. Look Look at all that I'm saying. I'm saying the right things. I'm doing the right. Look at me, God. You are acting wickedly, God, because you're not blessing me. We've got to be careful of that. This is a confession that Nehemiah makes that in all of the judgment that God gave on his people, because of their wickedness, he was the one who was righteous in the midst of that. Even as his people mocked and scoffed at God. In verse 35, no matter how much God does for us, it just never seems to be enough. That's just human nature and I get it. Verses 36 and 37 is the harsh reminder that though they were were allowed to return from exile, they were still a conquered people, a vassal state, and a people that was bearing a rugged yoke. They still had to pay taxes to Persia. They were just an outpost of Persia. It's a reminder that the consequences of sin usually outlast, and I would say way outlast, any pleasure or benefit that we might gain from our sin. Our founding pastor, Tom Schrader, used to say this. He used to say, you know, if you're not having fun when you're sinning, you're not sinning correctly. But then he would say, but that fun only lasts a season, and the consequences can last forever. we got to be careful of that. So verses 32 through 37 can be summed up this way. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and his character is the same in every situation, epoch, and context. He's faithful. He's holy. 
He's just, he's gracious, he's true, and he's right. Then the last verse, verse 38. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. See, these 37 verses of remembering, recounting, and reminding lead to a revival of the people to and for God. And notice that the revival came as the result of confessing sin, of acknowledging reality, and of making covenant with God, and not from ignorance and euphoria. Revival never comes from ignorance and euphoria. It comes from pursuing God, turning to God, repenting and confessing. See, our problem is as old as Genesis chapter 3. We want the blessing of God without the commitment with God, the covenant with God, or the acknowledgement of our sin. But Jesus turns the table on all of these, and that's the good news. Jesus' covenant and commitment in the Gospels, as we've been reminded going through the Gospel of John prior to this, is that Jesus does his Father's work, and that work includes going to the cross for those who don't deserve it, but that Jesus cannot help but love. That's the gospel. That's the good news. Yet, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. I just, I don't see how we can, in good consciousness, walk away from the love and sacrifice that Jesus has for us. This is a gift, and it is good news, and it is true. And we should confess and celebrate that. I know all the talk about sin is heavy, but there's no point or need for good news if there isn't some bad news. We have to acknowledge the bad news before we can get to the good news of Jesus, and that's what we get to do now. We get to come to the Lord's table. And man, I still, I recognize that on the original Lord's table 2,100 years ago, they did not have little plastic containers with juice and a wafer. There was real bread and real wine. I understand that. And someday maybe we'll get back to that. But now, we still do it because what we have is a confession and a celebration of who Christ is for us. It's a confession that we need him and a celebration that we have him. And we still need to do it, whatever the elements are. The elements remind us of Christ's broken body for us and the blood that he poured out for the remission of our sins, for the forgiveness of our sins. And he says, we are to do that every time we gather until he comes again. We celebrate that. Let me pray and the band will come and we'll get started with our last song and our communion. Uh, By the way, those of you who are not sure how this works, we come into the center aisle row by row, and then you split off and you take from uh, one of these two trays, head back to your, um, your chair, and prayerfully take the elements. And then when you're ready, if you can, please stand for the rest of the last song as we sing and for our benediction. Lord God, we thank you for your word and its truth. And we thank you that it doesn't pull any punches, but in the end, it reminds us of your graciousness your mercy, your love, and your faithfulness. So God, as we, as we contemplate all that's happened here, and as we think about what you've given us in your Son Christ, and the gift of your Holy Spirit, and the wisdom of your Word, I just pray 
that we would be a people that would have the courage to dive deep into who you are. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. like a hurricane I am a tree bending beneath the weight of his wind and mercy when all of a sudden I'm unaware of these afflictions eclipsed by glory and I realize just how beautiful you are and how great your affections are for me. And oh, how he loves us so. Oh, how he loves us. How he loves us.
All this talk about sin and stubbornness and rebellion and turning away from God only exemplifies how much He really does love us. That's the point of that song. It wasn't my plan, but it's a perfect way to end today and this message. He really does love us. And when we begin to place our faith in Him and not in our own good works, we begin to see that mercy and that love and that grace actually take hold in our lives. When we point to Him and not to us, that's a really beautiful thing. And we can start to understand that maybe it's not that bad where we are because He really does love us. If you... If you're new to all of this and would like to talk to somebody, I'm around, Trey's around, Tyler's around, Steve and Ann are around. There's Tyler over there. We'd be glad to talk to you about who Jesus is. I'd like to talk to you about the church. Whatever you want to do, we'd be glad to uh, do that with you. If you want to set up a time for coffee, we can do that as well. But now let this be our benediction and our blessing to you as you go. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord lift up His face upon you and shine His grace upon you. And may the Lord always walk with you, in front of you, to lead you, behind you to protect you, and at your side as a wise counselor and your friend. Go and live all of life all for Jesus this week. We'll see you next week.